menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So I do not remember exactly where I was when I saw Moulin Rouge for the first time. I know it was in 2001 when it came out. But let's just say the images were seared into my brain and they have remained there ever since. (laughs) I mean, I've probably seen this film 50 times and each time, April, I am swept into this like quasi-historical fantasy dreamscape that has the most incredible costume and production design by four-time Academy Award-winning designer Catherine Martin, who also happens to be today's guest. Yay! And of course, Catherine is a foundational staple of her husband, Baz Lerman's design team. She is responsible for creating some of the most jaw-dropping and memorable costume moments on the screen. From Nicole Kidman's red silk satin dress in Moulin Rouge to the glamorous 1920s chiffon-bedecked world of 2014's Great Gatsby to the dazzling jumpsuits of the most recently released Elvis biopic, 
Catherine is one of the most important visual storytellers working in film and TV today. And she works closely with Baz and an incredible behind the scenes team to bring audiences one epic high octane visual feast after another for the past 30 years. Yeah, and with so many of Baz's projects being set in historical periods, Catherine really has an intimate relationship with fashion history, and she has this incredible talent for making fashion history fresh for today's audiences. And this is a gift that means her work influences contemporary fashion and vice versa. And Catherine and Baz's close relationship with contemporary fashion is actually exhibited in this series of short fashion films that they collaborated on for the Met's 2012 exhibition, Scaparelli and Prada, Impossible Conversations. And their multi-decade friendship and working relationship with Muccia Prada is also reflected in the trio's collaboration for The Great Gatsby, which featured over 40 Miu Miu and Prada dresses. Now, we are so excited to learn more about how Catherine costumes fashion history for the screen in this week's two-part series. Without further ado, Catherine, welcome to Dressed. Oh, well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be um, speaking with you today. Yeah, it's, I mean, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've followed your work for many, many years now, and I am so excited to learn more about your process, what goes into what you do, what inspires what you do. And I know that fashion and fashion history really plays a prominent role in your work. And I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about maybe your earliest introductions to fashion, maybe your formative years. For instance, do you have an earliest memory that might have sparked your interest? Very, very good question. I suppose the biggest part of family folklore is that I had an obsession with shoes from a very young age. And so I refused until I was six to wear any other colour shoe but a red shoe. No one knows why. <laughs> um, I also had a phobia. So I was obsessed with shoes. I always wanted new shoes, but I also had a phobia about people in the shop measuring my feet. So it was always a very fraught and emotional visit to the shoe shop. So it was great desire met with absolute horror. Um, and I was, yes, I only would wear red shoes. And I always wanted to make things. I was always incredibly prolific. So at kindergarten, I wouldn't came home with one painting, I'd come home with 50 paintings. Their quality, I'm sure, was extremely dubious. Um, but that idea of making things was really important. And when I was six, I asked my mother to teach me to use the sewing machine. So I started making clothes for my dolls and my mother telling me that I wasn't cutting garment correctly. I remember this really clearly because I was just cutting out t-shirt shapes to make dresses for the dolls and my mother was saying you really see all those gathers under the arm you really <laughs> need to look at how you know to cut an inset sleeve so um mum sewed because people in the 60s still sewed you know there was a local fabric shop up the road there was vogue patterns that licensed um all of the couturiers, French couturiers. And there was, a, you know, there was still this sort of home dressmaking culture that just doesn't exist today. I think sewing machines or domestic sewing machines have been saved by quilting if it was Absolutely. just. But the majority of households 
in my day had a sewing machine. We had a blue singer, which was very popular. Uh, you know, had a sewing machine for repairs and for making clothes. And my mother would made me a lot of clothes when I was a child. I remember that she made me um, and her. It was a Mondrian dress. I think Yves Saint Laurent had licensed that dress to Vogue patterns. And I remember being really happy that we had matching clothes. And then my grandmother in Australia was a staunch Presbyterian and very socially involved with the church. I mean, that was the centre of her social life. And one of the things they did every year was have a fashion parade, which was of historical costume. And that raised money for the church. And I always remember absolutely adoring that part of the calendar year when we watched all these incredibly old dresses walk down this runway. And I remember going to the V&A with my auntie Pat when I was about six or seven and going into the costume collection and just being amazed by it and amazed by the social history connections between the way the clothes looked, the idea of the history, what that, what those clothes meant in the period, why people wore those clothes, where the fabrics came from, how everything was made. And it's just been an interest and obsession since, you know, certainly since I was six. You know, people always knew if they wanted to give me a present, a history of fashion book or fashion through the ages or anything that focused on images that spoke to clothes. Well, this all makes a lot of sense now, knowing that you've been exposed to it from basically since you could walk. <laughs> yeah, and- I, I know. And it's it's funny because my mom always, both my mom and dad have style to some degree. Certainly my mother has very flamboyant style. My dad's very stylish too and um, still really thinks about what he wears, like he has all his life. And I remember my mother actually made him a number of lace shirts in the 70s. So there is a connection between my family experience, lace shirts, and the lace shirts that eventually ended up in Elvis. And I was thinking the other day, oh, I wonder if I was remembering that from my childhood and kind of joining all the dots. Oh, absolutely. And it sounds like too, from a very young age, you were exposed to kind of how clothes could tell a story too, especially if you're encountering them in museums, as you were just talking to and speaking to, um, which certainly translates into your work as a costume designer. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's, that's also something that I've been, it's a very rich vein in Baz and I's working relationship that he absolutely starts at the beginning of the storytelling with a perspective on how the clothes can help to speak to the character of the person. So he will have in his mind very strong ideas, images, sketches, tear sheets of how clothes could and would help the character reveal themselves on screen and connect to an audience 
And I think that is a huge gift when you're a costume designer because the language of clothes within a movie becomes an integral part of the storytelling. And I really enjoy that. And I get into trouble all the time, my daughter is always on my case because if we're, you know, at a cafe in Paris or we've gone for a coffee somewhere together, um, I can't remember what the safe word is, but let's say mum, pineapple, it's me staring at other people. I just can't help it. And looking them up and down and examining every detail of their outfit, mum just goes, you are so embarrassing, (laughs) so embarrassing. Do not do that. But you can't help it, right? You're soaking it all in. Because sometimes (laughs) I just think, why did you decide to put that together? Why did you think that that was a good idea? How did that come to you? Because I think there's another thing that Baz has pointed out to me and has become really central to my process. And it seems so obvious when you say it, but until someone says it to you, it's not that obvious. He always says, when you put on an outfit, it makes you feel a certain way. But sometimes that doesn't translate. You know, it's a private system of meaning. So you may think that what you've got on is making you look the best in the whole world, but in fact, you look pretty terrible for whatever reason. And um, it's bridging also the, like finding a language to describe how a character's feeling through clothes And history is really important because the social history, which I find the most fascinating area of history, because it's about real people and it's about real people interacting with everyday objects. And it's more fascinating to me in some respect, the sort of the microcosm of history is more interesting because I find people endlessly fascinating and strange and beautiful and beguiling and also the intersection of social history and enormous geopolitical events you know the idea that in the French Revolution people were walking around with red ribbons tied around their neck as a reference to being guillotined I just find incredibly fascinating you know that that ironical twist existed even in the 18th century, you know, oh yeah, that I find that fascinating. Yeah, and and we are a podcast dedicated entirely to why that's fascinating and why clothing yeah. is kind of like this conduit to history, to all of these like social cultural significance. It's kind of like this entry point into learning all of these different facets of of humanity and history and and why clothing matters and what it communicates, um, which again is certainly part and parcel to what you do as a costume designer. And I love researching about your and Baz's process because I've, I've read, I think that you're self-described research junkies. You both love to research and that your research can even begin years before production and before the script is written. And as you've just mentioned, your costume research can be really integral to how Baz even writes the script and thinks about the film. Can you talk to us a little bit about your research process and perhaps starting with a film like Moulin Rouge? So with Moulin Rouge or or any show that's set, you know, whether it was Gatsby or Elvis or Moulin Rouge, Baz sets a series of 
of research tasks which are absolutely based in 100% historical fact. So uh, the process ranged everything from reading novels written in the period or near the period like Emil Zola's Nana to travel logs written by people in the late 19th century, very particularly Americans, who wrote a lot of travel logs about or basically like guidebooks going to Paris, their experiences at the Moulin Rouge. I even read a guidebook of the brothels of Paris and what each brothel was there, what was known for. And I also went to the Met and pulled a bunch of things that were very specific to the period. And through that research, you often find kind of those clues or those things that unlock something that you were kind of going so what's so sexy about those girls that looks like they're in granny's underwear kicking their legs up and then something that you might know in the back of your mind like that all these girls were wearing split knickers girls undies in those days were two legs right <laughs> on fostering and so when you did the can-can, people were getting a flash of, they were getting value for money, let's put it that way. <laughs> and so you start to understand that it was really shocking. And if people were doing that, that would be shocking today. And it was this idea, and I think Baz coined the phrase, you know, a world of entertainment under women's skirts. And how do you translate that? to a modern audience within the confines of a rating in a movie because obviously we're not going to make an X-rated film because that's not what it's about. And to find the language, that was a big journey that Angus and I went on, to find the language, how did you make a world of entertainment under women's skirts? How did you symbolise that? And Baz was talking about the ruffles and like beautiful tropical fish swimming through coral, you know, and how to create those images. And it was then a process of looking at how petticoats were constructed. And obviously in our movie, we took a conceit that was really developed in the 50s for all the Can-Can movies, which is we reversed the ruffles. So petticoats really have their ruffles on the top, you know, because you're pushing the skirt out. The ruffles aren't against the legs because really structurally they're just meant to make the skirt fuller. We took that cue and reversed the ruffles in towards the legs, which meant that when you lifted up the dress you got to see all that incredible work and we looked at I don't know how many real 19th century petticoats and the kind of fetish for underwear in the late 19th century was extreme and the handiwork and the embroidery and the detailing and beautiful petticoats were very important and we really leaned into every traditional decorative technique that was used, whether it was sending the ruffles off to be, in this instance, machine embroidered. There were there was some machine embroidery at the end of the 19th century, but it probably would have been done by hand. But, you know, to embroider the ruffles, to apply ribbon, and then just examining all the techniques that were historically available 
to make them as interesting and as textured as possible, whether it was cutting them on the bias, cutting them on the straight, and then playing with all the different fabrics. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. And right now, you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which, Cass, is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, running an itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Ask Pro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. So I'm just curious, was there anything surprising or unexpected, Catherine, that you came upon in your research process? 
The thing that also shocked and surprised me in terms of the historical research I did is seeing the possible colour palette that was available to us and the colour combinations that were people were using in the late 19th century blew my mind because you read it but then you think to yourself that's not possible it's like when you read about the advent of aniline dyes and people are talking about all those crazy colors yep. and then they almost a fluorescent tartan crinoline and you just go how is that even possible <laughs> I remember and we we you know, copied it exactly. I found in the Met um, a feather boa that was almost a fluorescent orange. It was twisted like fluorescent orange with the most aggressive magenta purple you could imagine, twisted with a huge orange and purple tassel at the end. And we copied that for Nini Legs in the Air, but also seeing all the colours that were combined. And you just went, is this, are, this, are these good colour combinations? <laughs> in the late 19th century, they went slightly crazy. And then you realise how important colour is and how coming out in the 50s and all these technological advances, how important too technological advances have been, you know, in terms of fashion and how quickly fashion adopts them uh, and how important colour is to human beings as a rule. Like the love of colour and ornamentation is just an unstoppable appetite. And I think that's why Disney and Disneyland and princesses are so popular because if you think of the ancient Greeks, Everything was polychrome. It wasn't just white. And I mean, obviously you're in Baz's films too, which are these visual feasts of color. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and it's interesting because sometimes people say, um, you know, is that bad taste? And I go, well, if that's bad taste, then humanity is in a constant struggle with its own bad taste. And unfortunately, bad taste is winning. Um, <laughs> to say I don't like really restrained palettes as well because you know in the dining room scene in Gatsby it's all very restrained or in the opening scene in Gatsby with the curtains and and that's something that's like absolutely it's not but that idea of using color and color as a compositional and a palette as a, a compositional anchor for storytelling and the storytelling of clothes, I think is really important. I mean, for people who had questioned color, right? Question your use of color or um, across the screen and how it's used as a storytelling technique, I would direct them to your four Oscars <laughs> because you really have made a name for yourself with this ability to seamlessly blend different historic periods with contemporary fashions and you create these worlds visually that remain fresh to contemporary audiences, but they still feel very much rooted in history. And not everyone has this skill. This is really an art form that you've perfected and you do it incredibly well. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about how you negotiate historical accuracy with the art of storytelling and why not only is that important, but it's intentional to you because you, to your process, you do that with Moulin Rouge and also with Great Gatsby. Yes, so it comes back to that thing of making sure 
that the audience can connect to the characters and the way that the characters are feeling and that the social history messages don't get lost in the mists of time. For instance, in the opening scene in Gatsby, or one of the opening scenes where Daisy is lying on the on the couch and the curtains are billowing and it was about finding a way of getting the audience right into the centre of those two female characters' position in the dynamic changing world of the 20s. And it was about finding clothes that could help us do that. Because if you go absolutely to 1925 and look at what women would have been wearing in 1925 in that milieu probably, it would have been white cotton dresses, dropped waist, not very body conscious, and probably in a modern audience's eyes, would have looked, because not everyone's a, a historian, would have looked like a nighty and not understanding that we were coming out of the 19th century where everything was tight and corseted and bound up and now we're in the 20s and people aren't wearing corsets and they're basically naked under their clothes. And so this idea, we, we don't see that. We see people naked in their swimsuits all the time. So we're disconnected from that social history moment. You know, we don't understand how shocking that was, you know, at the time or revolutionary. So it was about Baz set the challenge of finding a way of also being very clear from the outset that Jordan Baker was a product of the 20th century. She was a sportswoman. She was a golfer. She was in charge of her own destiny. She defied all these kind of traditional female things like being honest and truthful and staying at home. She had a very specific agency in the world. And so we started thinking about, well, what was the most shocking thing and it was the advent of beach pajamas and lounging pajamas and this idea you know Paul Poirier did you know kind of harem pants and stuff but this idea of pants coming into a kind of a leisure sporting this idea of America and sportswear and her being at that vanguard and looking to this idea of some kind of pyjama, bias butt cut pyjama that was about being lithe and sinuous and sportsmanlike. And then Daisy, finding something that harked back to an earlier century. So in the 20s, there was a style called the uh, robe de style, which is a kind of a take on an 18th century kind of court dress. And it was, you know, a 20s version. It's not what we think of as 1920s, but it definitely existed as a style. And this idea of connecting Daisy back and her still being trapped in the late 19th century and all the mores that surrounded her, the expectation of her family that she would marry well, that she would just be this beautiful prize to a man, that she would be always under the protection of a man and basically have no agency in her life and that 
fundamentally she was a fragile character. And so that is kind of how we collaborated to come up with those two different styles. Rob de Stille also had the, because Baz wanted this sense of just the air and the like clouds floating through this incredible cream room and the ability to have the volume in the skirt and to use kind of very beautiful and kind of voluminous and see-through and all that kind of very fleshy, delicate colours. You know, her name is Daisy and, and, and really leaning into kind of cream and white and flesh just to give her that fragility. So it came from intense historic research, but reinterpreting or selecting elements that have historical veracitude and bringing them into, um, into a combination that allows the audience into the story in a more direct way. I think that's, that's really one of the things I really rely on Baz to help with because his eye just is uncompromising and he'll go, I just don't buy that. And then another thing that we did was I went and saw there was a beautiful Lanvin exhibition in Paris and what was super interesting was seeing the clothes in colour on a mannequin in a case and they looked so modern. Like you just thought, oh, well, someone should just reproduce those. There's a collection today. She's so interesting too because you always hear about Coco Chanel as the kind of the definitive modern woman creator, but Lan Van opened her shop in, I think, in 1910. She she joined the Haute Couture, um, the Chambre Syndicale, and she was creating modern dresses on pier gowns at the same time as Poiret years before Chanel. Yes. And she, I mean, she's one of my absolute favorite fashion designers. So that's why I kind of had to interject because she's so underrated in terms of that. Yes. Just fascinating how things get kind of lost. Do you know what I mean? In the mists of time. And then there were black and white photos of the models in the dresses. And you've never seen a more dour collection of black and white photos. And my dad and I were standing there just going, oh, how can this incredible dress look like that in that photo so that kind of unlocked another thing where I was looking at fashion illustrations from the 20s and going well they actually wanted the clothes to look like these illustrations but somehow when real people and someone taking their photo became involved something horrible happened kind of went <laughs> hair shaped and so Baz and I started talking about, I said to him, I think what we're trying for is what the Lanvin costumes look like on a mannequin in a museum and what fashion illustrators at the time were drawing the clothes to look like. I think that's the spirit of the times. That's the idealised look. That's what people wanted things to look like. And so we started looking at that and thinking, right, okay, so how can we translate that? And I remember there was a lot of criticism because Nick Carraway's suits were too tight for the for 1925. And I'm like, not every single person wore Oxford bags the day that Oxford bags were, you know, <laughs> arrived in Oxford or wherever. Like, there's always a variation, right? There'll always be 
even when you go to a family function like Thanksgiving or Christmas, there'll be an auntie who's still dressed in 1970 and there'll be a 15-year-old who's, you know, celebrating the noughties and there'll be a large number of people who just don't care and have just, for whatever reason, picked out a cat T-shirt with a few stains on it and a bad pair of trackies. And that will be the landscape of the gathering. No, um, I mean, that's what's so special about your films too, is I think if you're going to narrow on, in on historical accuracy, you're really missing the point because I think you you do things with clothing in an incredibly thoughtful way. And like I said, in, in an artistic way that a lot of people can't actually achieve. One of the things being is that like your research for this film, you used Brooks Brothers suits. I think there's something like 1700 Brooks Brothers pieces. S. Scott Fitzgerald was a Brooks Brother customer. So those are the types of nuances that are in those that film if you really want to look but also just this fact that if you had been completely historically accurate it would not have translated to modern audiences correct and back in the 30s you know really from Cecil B. DeMille yes I know controversial character but (laughs) movies were about spectacle and costumes and a lot of early silent films even had just fashion parades so people could look at clothes And I think that there is something that I do say to my team. I say, would you pay money to go and see that? Like, and that doesn't mean everything (laughs) has to be glamorous and perfect, but even with something like the Valley of the Ashes, right, you have to go, I've paid my $20 to go to the movies or, and when I go, do I feel people have made an effort? Have they thought about it? And have they given me an entry into the world in a conscious and caring and detailed way? Because at the end of the day, you are inviting people into a dark room and it's like two and a half hours, they're never going to get back, right? And part (laughs) of it is the degradation, the squalor, the heights, the depths, the glamour, the colour, the movement, the lack of colour. It's about being respectful to an audience. The I think that's another reason why the costumes really look good. If I well, I don't know whether I should say that myself, but I lay it at Baz's feet because he really invests in every background character. We have to write a little story. We have to have an idea for who each person is. There has to be a logic to what they're doing, why they're there. And we try to get to as many people as we can and kind of say, well, this little group, you're together, you're a family. The more that you have these little stories and the more invested you are in these people and the amount of investment that Baz puts in to all those people, it just brings the clothes to life. Because when you see some kind of reproduction 1950s dress that you've made in the workroom on a hanger and it's been broken down a bit to look old and some shoe crime in the bag because of, you know, a bunion or whatever, it's just like kind of nasty old damp clothing. And then you see it on the person and when they're invested and when they're part of the process just looks really good and then the other thing that just is that I have to really thank my team and headed up by Shane Thomas 
hair and makeup is absolutely integral to costuming. It's indivisible. Absolutely. That connection that Shane and I had made the clothes also come to life and the person come to life and it's so important and in a period drama where you're going between in um, Elvis we went between three different periods just finding like working together to find the things that just spoke the period Well, and just like all those elements that come together to create your films, those sorts of details are what set Baz Luhrmann films apart. And then I think also the fact that you work as a production and costume designer, which is just blows my mind um, as someone who works in film. So something I really want to talk about is fashion and film, because those are almost two inherently oppositional things, especially when you think about like the lag time between a film's production and its release when it comes out, um, it can be years later. So what was in fashion, if you're, you know, when you filmed it might not be anymore, but your costumes for say like the great Gatsby, which is set in the roaring twenties remained and remain so fresh and exciting that at the film's release, they actually influenced contemporary runway fashion. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the role of fashion in The Great Gatsby and maybe your relationship with Mucha Prada? Because I think that relationship, which has carried you, with you across you know, decades at this point, is really, really interesting. I love fashion and I love the savoir-faire in fashion. I love the resource, the crispness, the newness, the unexpected nature of fashion gestures that you might not think when you're kind of in a heavy kind of costume moment and there's something sexy about fashion and I think that the frisson that fashion can bring to movies is kind of really elevating and I think with Gatsby What was interesting, because I think Mucha was a little bit, you know, at first she was very intelligent, longtime friend of our process, longtime particularly good friend of Baz's, incredibly intellectual, you know, and incredibly interesting to talk to because some of her questions were, well, how does fashion, you know, I don't see myself as being someone who looks to the past in terms of to historical references I'm always trying to see where we are now and where we're going to and I said well yes and I think that's what is interesting because there's a nexus in terms of approach between you and Baz in your work where Baz looks to the past to look to the future and somehow there's this really sweet spot there and that the 20s was very much about avant-gardism and about the future and about um, the machine age and about women really, you know, great strides forward. You have women in the teens getting the vote and you start, you know, you start to see the beginnings of women challenging these traditional roles in society. And I thought it was so appropriate that a a woman designer who really, I think, makes clothes for women and really 
finds a way of connecting to where we all are now. There's a dialogue, you know, happening. And I thought how interesting that this period was also the period of very strong female designers, whether it's Jeanne Lanvin or whether it's Chanel or whether it's the Caillou sisters or whoever we're talking about. I felt it was a really, or we felt, Baz and I felt, that it was a great kind of synergy and it would also elevate the party because what it would allow us to do is subliminally in talking about this collaboration we were preparing the audience to think of the party as being with the most celebrated and avant-garde people because from our social history perspective we connect Prada and we connect Miu Miu with that avant-gardeism and in order to have the dialogue with Mucha um, we started to talk about the characters for the 40 background costumes we used a bunch of references, everything from uh, the book itself, which describes all the a large number of people who are at the party. We cross-referenced that list in Vanity Fair every year at the beginning of the theatre season. They would do these, um, you know, the first 10 rows of the theatre as a caricature, and they would say who each of the people were, and we looked through, I don't know, like about four or five years of those, and we looked at the book and we started to make characters and then I'd done a huge amount of research of actual fashion plates or photos of outfits that I thought would match up. And Baz and I had kind of gone through the characters and through historical research had matched up the kind of look we were thinking for each person. And you would not believe it, but the chandelier dress that Daisy wears, I have an image that Mucha Prada had never, ever seen. Wow. And I was able to go, hey, look, this is a picture, a fashion plate from 1925, and look at this chandelier dress. This could be an amazing because she is a diamond. She's encased in jewels. She's a bird in a gilded cage. This seems to all be working. And so how we uh, collaborated is I would look at the collections and I would say, look, I think this speaks to this character and this. And then there would be a dialogue between Mucha, her design teams and us, and we would come up with a synthesis of those things. But it all came from stimulating historical research, from character analysis, and then it going back through that fashion lens. And I just think great fashion, right, beautiful things remain classic and timeless. And I think that a lot of what we see in Gatsby too is just the material speaking. So I bought an enormous amount of beaded, figured lace and sequined lace from Solstice, a really, really big, I mean, it's the only time I've really in my entire career been able to go crazy with fabric. <laughs> and I think I got away with it because I kept saying, well, you know, the shape's very simple. So if we just get length of this very expensive fabric, <laughs> we'll just have to put two seams in it and it'll be perfect. But just having simple shapes and letting the fabric speak. You know, that was also a part of the 20s. Exquisite fabric, let it speak. And 
yeah, and beautiful hair and makeup. So that was, in that instance, it was Kerry Warren and the late Maurizio Silvi, who unfortunately recently passed away. And just getting, yeah, creating that image. And I, I just think fashion just goes beyond anything I could imagine. I find it, I hope this doesn't sound perverted, maybe this is my fetish. It gives me physical pleasure, not in a sexual sense, but in a, in a genuinely open-hearted kind of, when I see something beautiful, it just makes my heart skip a beat. And I just want to keep that language of beauty and the, the influence just flowing seamlessly between all these creative people. And I, I, I think that the more that we can be open to others and their way of seeing things and doing things and the more collaborations. And certainly as I get older and I'm more confident and you feel like you have less to prove, I mean, that's my great joy is the collaborations I have with the people I work with, with Mutual Prada, with Miu Miu. That feeling of being a team and we're all throwing ourselves at something and it actually working out and you just the exhilaration it's just too great and then to see it all come to fruition I mean and the fact that you and Baz and your team spend so many years working on these films I mean I remember hearing about Elvis years and years ago and just being so excited and then waiting for it and then the anticipation because you know your films only come out every so often because we we know there are these grand productions and we know even if you've been watching your work since Strictly Ballroom like I have that you know, everything that goes into it and what to expect. And that was certainly the case. No disappointment with Elvis. I mean, everything I would expect and more, that movie was absolutely exhilarating from start to finish. And dress listeners, you are just going to have to wait until Tuesday for our discussion about Elvis, which received a whopping eight Oscar nods April, including two nominations for Catherine for production design, which she did co-design with Karen Murphy and then with cost for costume design. And to my great surprise, April, the film did not win one, but it really just speaks to how epic this film was, that they was nominated so many times and received so many accolades and awards beyond the Oscars, of course. And really, it's because it undertook the story of one of the most famous and beloved musicians in history. And of course, that is one Mr. Elvis Presley. Until Thursday, dress listeners, may you consider where the language of beauty resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, you can do so by emailing us at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will, of course, find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, you can check out the hashtag dressed321. That's dressed and the numbers 321. More dressed on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. When you 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.